0: Money FM 89.3. Best of Breakfast. Morning Shot.
1: Welcome to Morning Shot. It's Ahmad and Ryan with you. The Indo Pacific region is currently under a cash crunch, hit face on with overlapping challenges. This includes the long lasting effects of the COVID 19 pandemic, climate crisis,
0: and ongoing conflicts impacting supply chains around the world. But it's also a region that's seen increased attention from both China and the United States. In fact, the US, Japan and South Korea held their first Indo-Pacific dialogue in Washington earlier this month.
1: That's right. And given the US's aggressive Indo-Pacific maritime strategy, China has responded in kind with the appointment of its first defence minister with a naval background, highlighting the priority it has set for its military
0: development. As the contest between the US and China continues to heat up, analysts are closely watching how China's Belt and Road Initiative investments are fueling added geopolitical competition in the Indo-Pacific. For more insights, so we're joined by Pushan Dutt. He is the Professor of Economics at INSIAT. Good morning, Pushan. How are you doing today?
2: Good morning. I'm doing very well. Thank you.
0: Let's get your help first to lay the context of what's happening here. To what extent is China's investment into the Belt and Road Initiative fueling the geopolitical competition in the Indo-Pacific?
2: So just to set some context, you know, the the political scientists think of three eras in China's rise. One is this hide-and-bide era in the 1980s and 1990s, which was under Deng's guidance of hide your capabilities and bide your time. Now, the second phase was building regional influence and this is that when the brick and road initiative was launched also the asian infrastructure bank so now today we moved into i think a new era which is of strategic displacement where china is seeking to challenge the u.s push it out of the region uh, and sort of dominate uh, indo-pacific now this was anticipated by uh, li kuan yu long time ago He said that, you know, uh, China does not want to be seen as an honorary member of the West and wants to share this century with the United States as co-equals. And uh, the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, sort of got the process going. There was both an economic component, a political component, a geopolitical component uh, to it. So the big questions, I think, for the future is what will China's grand strategy be on the path it has set? How will it pursue this strategy in the face of slowing growth? And how will the U.S. and Europe react to it?
1: Pushin, China's push towards a greater share of soft power has been met with much controversy over the years in the form of the Belt and Road Initiative. For example, high debt faced by many of the participant countries and also China's lack of adherence to many Western norms in construction, uh, such as in environmental regulations. How can differences be reconciled and what do you make of China's commitment to the initiative?
2: So uh, there's a very famous saying which says that, you know, when uh, emerging markets talk to U.S. or China, the U.S. will give them a lecture whereas the Chinese will give them an airport. Okay? <laughs> and, and of course, uh, that is very attractive from the perspective of these emerging markets, which need lots and lots of investments in order to get onto their growth path. So initially, the BRI was quite successful because poor countries that, who did not have access to international markets, you know, they have a tremendous need for capital and investment now this is also uh, but these are also countries that uh, there have a they have this long-standing problem of lack of governance political instability civil conflict many multinationals in the past have gotten burnt by it and it was not surprising that you know many of the deaths have actually now gone bad out of the trillion dollars spent in you know china by best estimates has had to bail out about 250 billion dollars now will china continue on this path i think the big challenge that is Facing is that the Chinese strategy of you know this heavy infrastructure-led investments has run into diminishing returns. BRI was also a way of exporting this model mm. to the rest of the world, but it's just. The, but now that debt levels are rising in China, the property market has slowed down. I, I would think that they are going to actually shift uh, you know focus more internally and away from the Belt and Road Initiative.
0: Yeah, when we talk about BRI. It's a lot of things going on here: building roads, airports, buildings, infrastructure. And that costs a lot of money. So there is some degree of observation. Some folks are saying, hey, perhaps there's some level of debt trap going on here when it comes to the potential risks. What's your assessment on this front?
2: So, again, many of the countries which did this borrowing, if you think about Pakistan, Ethiopia, Sri Lanka, where the BRI projects have gone bad, they have struggled always to, you know, they have overborrowed. uh, They lack the institutions and governance systems uh, on uh, accelerating growth. And then they overborrow on, on international markets, and they essentially have to be bailed out. Or they have overborrowed from donors, like, you know, the Paris Club of Donors. China was just the latest player in the game. And, you know, things are looking very similar for China as it would have uh, looked for international lenders, other donors, etc. So, again, this, I don't think it's correct to say that, you know, when uh, China does this investment that they went in, you know, trying to create debt traps for these. The debt traps already existed. Uh, what they were thinking about is, of course, economic returns. And they were, of course, thinking about geopolitical returns in the mix of the two.
1: Pushun, let's uh, bring in the other big player in this geopolitical tussle or chess match, the USA. Uh, we can't ignore the fact that they're in a contest with China on many fronts. Do you think the U.S. is spending its posture dollars in the Indo-Pacific region wisely in terms of the opportunities available to them?
2: So the U.S.'s uh, competitive advantage has always been its alliance structure. The fact that you know it has alliance with, in Europe, with many countries in the Indo-Pacific, Uh, Now, but I think today it is playing this game a little bit naively because uh, U.S. and Europe to some extent have always seen competition in this region as as through a bipolar lens, like as a conflict between the U.S. and and China. But I think what they should be (laughs) doing is they should also be thinking ahead. So if, if you look a couple of decades ahead, then, you know, India, Indonesia, Vietnam, these are also likely to emerge as regional power centers. Now, these countries want to remain free to make their choices that best fit their interests. And I think these country, countries like India and Indonesia will drive long-term changes uh, in, in these power dynamics in Asia. So I think the U.S. now has to pivot and actually pay more attention to the rising powers. And this just goes, on, goes to say that how multipolar the region itself is, that this is multipolarity you see not just globally, but you see within the region both today and, mm. and in the future.
0: Yeah, Pushan, talking about the US, the lead up to the presidential election is already heating up. So how will results of the election affect the signs that the US might take on foreign policy, investments in the region moving forward?
2: So I think this is the critical worry for all the countries which are part of the US's current alliance, whether it's Japan, South Korea, Singapore to some extent, and of course, NATO and Europe. Uh, U.S. presidents do not have a lot of degrees of freedom on the domestic front, but they have tremendous degrees of freedom on the foreign policy front. So I think if Trump gets elected, this is sort of like an existential risk to the global order. He has already said that he's going to bring the Ukraine war to an end. He's extremely skeptical of trade and has promised a 10 percent increase in tariffs. And uh he has a very transactional approaches and has even, you know, threatened to pull out pull troops out of Japan and South Korea. So uh Europe, South Korea, Japan, Australia, all of them need to stress test their line structures, their, their economies where the US actually turns inwards. And again we see in the US that the US has a long history of this. And even today we can see that, you know, they can't seem to agree either on aid for Ukraine, uh, you know, Big trade agreements simply don't get done. It, you know, it pulled out of multiple ones. There's a new one in in play, but not much uh, progress is happening. And I think this progress will grind to a complete halt if Donald Trump becomes the next president.
1: Pushin, let's talk about some of the key stakeholders in this whole situation, the countries themselves in the Indo-Pacific region. From an economic perspective, what are the risks faced by these countries in the months ahead? And how do you think they can better navigate the uncertain geopolitical situation and the political momentum between the world's two largest economies?
2: So I think uh, if I look at all the countries in the region, they're part of global supply chains, global value chains. They're, they're firmly embedded into it. So if there is a conflict or there's an economic blockade of Taiwan, then this is going to have catastrophic consequences for world trade costs and production of semiconductors, everything that goes into production. Uh, Bloomberg recently had an estimate that, you know, the shock would be equivalent to about $10 trillion, uh, which is absolutely massive. Now, all of these countries actually, therefore, have incentives to make sure to act as a bridge between the U.S. and China. Uh, You know, Singapore, I think, is one of the key ones. So what they have to do is to actually, you know, work as hard as possible to make sure that this conflict, which is like a slow, simmering one between the U.S. and China, does not actually become a a hot conflict. Uh, and there are many other confrontations which are happening in the world and we've already seen like an impact on oil prices shipping Mm -hmm. costs this is one in the Middle East these will get completely dwarfed if there is actually a conflict in this region so I think all of these countries have incentives to focus on the status quo and they have to be more active about it they cannot simply rely on the US and China to make all the moves and rely on the US as the guarantor of the international trading order investment order so I just wanted to highlight that uh, where I work, which is SIAD, we're organizing an, an Indo-Pacific forum where all of these uh, topics will be addressed by lots of leaders in the region and by, by a community of French economists. So I would encourage your viewers to pay attention to this because these questions, I think, are existential to the future going forward.
0: Yeah, a good overview of what's going to play out in the Indo-Pacific region, especially with the relationship between China and the U.S. Perhaps taking on new fronts this year. We've been in conversation, with Pushan Dutt. He is the professor of economics at Push Pushan, thanks for your time this morning, and we'll catch up again soon. Thank you. Stay money FM eighty-nine point three. To listen to more
1: great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg.